0: This is the passage you included in the, uh, in the chapter on Rodney Hilton. To dismiss peasant experience as belonging only to the past, as having no relevance to modern life, to imagine that the thousands of years of peasant culture leave no heritage for the future simply because it was seldom embodied in lasting objects, to continue to maintain As has been maintained for centuries, that peasant experience is marginal to civilization, is to deny the value of too many lives. No line of exclusion can be drawn across history in that manner as if it were a line across the closed account. Comrades and friends, hello. Um, this is a special episode of the Highlands Bunker Podcast uh, because back with us is our friend and comrade, um, the Professor Harvey J. K. Um,
1: Harvey, how are you? I'm doing great. It's really nice to see you, by the way. Yeah, it's I know always that nice they can't they can't see us. They can only hear us. But it's Correct. good to see you. Yeah
0: it's it's always uh it's always good to get a message from you, talk to you, see you. It's um it's cool. Actually, I've been. Uh, even thinking about your work more often, and this kind of work, but we'll get into that at the end because uh, we're actually embarking on a little bit of a history project ourselves. Uh, but I, I want to talk about that maybe at the end. Um, th- the first thing I want to do is congratulate um, your Green Bay Packers for beating the Dallas, the hated, the much hated Dallas Cowboys. <laughs> I would be remiss if I didn't uh, if I didn't mention that.
1: Yeah, and if, and if in case people don't appreciate what you're saying the Packers had lost like five in a row or something like that. And uh, the expectations were low for Sunday for Sunday. Well, it was evening for us here, I guess, late afternoon. And it was just, you know, exactly as we expected for much of the game, although the Packers were playing better than they had been playing in a while. And then all of a sudden this, you know, this rookie who had had a pretty, pretty sorry big start to his season. All of a sudden, receives three touchdown passes <laughs> and the game was won by the Green Bay Packers. <laughs> <laughs>
0: and if people don't know, uh, uh Harvey is a uh, is a part owner and season ticket holder of the Green Bay Packers.
1: Yeah, I wish I was a season ticket holder. The the, the tickets I, I... we had those seasons were through my wife's friends who were whose family goes way back in Green Bay. So they they have season tickets. They didn't want to go for years. The oh. problem was their kids grew up. Aha. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, that yeah. So now that's it. That's it. I mean, you you still do go to some games, I think. Yeah, I right, mean, we right? went to one game of, oh, a few weeks ago, and it was a game the Packers ended up winning in overtime against the, the Patriots. In fact, yeah, another nice. another team. I'm, another
0: hated team. Yeah, you know what? If the Packers can just beat the
1: teams that everybody hates, that's pretty good. Yeah, that I, I agree absolutely. Back in the 80s when the Packers were having trouble and the Cowboys claimed to be America's team, but they had a lot of very sleazy characters inside it. They had very, a lot of sleazy characters. That's the way I put it. On Monday, after football weekend, in my classes, everybody would be very, very sullen because the Packers had lost. And the only way to get out of it was to start telling Dallas Cowboy jokes. I wish I could remember some. I can't, but that's that. That's forty years ago. Around the time I was writing this book, the book we're going to talk about.
0: Yeah, so that's um, that's the the news. We've been hyping it um, a little bit too because it's exciting. Uh, the third edition uh, of your very first book, um, the British Marxist Historians. Um, I guess before we get before we get to um, the theme of the book and kind of placing it in its own history. How did you come to to write on? I know because I know you attended uh, the London School of Economics for a time, but then came back to
1: the states. Uh, but really, but it, what's funny there is it had very little to do with my. It started out. Well, let's put it this way: it really wasn't based on my British experience either. The fact that my wife was is, is British, and also the fact that I studied it at London in my graduate studies, though. Something happened during that year, which led to to my—I'll explain quickly, rather than fumble here. So most people think of me in terms of the American radical story, because I've written on Thomas Paine, and then the progressive era of Franklin Roosevelt, and a whole host of radical questions I've addressed over these past 30 years now, in fact. But, it, but actually, back in the 70s, I trained in Latin American studies. And my undergraduate degree in history, my graduate degree from London in politics, international relations, and my PhD, and I don't often tell people this, in sociology, essentially, from LSU, were all all based on Latin American studies. But here's what happened. So, and I was in London for the year for my master's degree, and I was in a, a minor course that I had on agrarian studies of Latin America. The lecturer or what we would think of in this country as the assistant professor a young fellow who was decidedly a Marxist he pulled me aside at the end of the first term and he said you know I know you know more about Latin America than every student in this program there were about there are only 15 or 20 of us in this particular graduate program he said the problem is that you're not asking the right questions. You, you, know, you know the the material, but you don't know how to articulate it. You're just not asking the right questions. And he sent me home that that, uh, that three-week long winter break we got at the Christmas holidays, and I have, and I sent me home with a question. And he said, "Are Latin American rural workers peasants or proletarians, Something like that? And and the question had to be answered in terms of these land tenure studies that had been published in paperback form and in English. So you could actually look at the degree to which peasants existed, that is, folks in possession of land holdings, or were they workers, as in plantation-style kind of work. And it doesn't matter what the answer I gave was. The fact was that he raised the question of, oh, Surplus extraction, the basis upon which exploitation took place. And I can tell you that it really began to pose a whole series of questions in my mind. When I came back to the states and I was working on a PhD, I didn't immediately get in, didn't immediately go to, for my PhD. Um, I spent a year on Wall Street. As a matter of fact, I was the first international lending officer trainee for Lloyd's Bank International, a job I did not want, <laughs> but I had to find a job. And and it's a whole long story, which we can talk about another time. Well, you
0: time. and I, you and I have the same. Uh, you did it for one year. I did it for many years, but uh, I didn't. Okay. I didn't want it either.
1: But I, I I feel you on that. Okay. Well, good. And at least you'll you'll know what I always tell people. Why did you leave the bank? And I'd say, well, politically it wasn't me to begin with, but also I couldn't read at the end of the day. They what? I said, Yeah, it's very tiring to commute in and out of New York City to banking. So uh, anyhow, so I came, I, I went to LSU. My wife and I got my now, yeah, my wife and I got married. Um, we'll be celebrating our 50th wedding anniversary next May. We were married young. And yeah, oh, nice. and went to Louisiana. And the idea from at Louisiana was I was now moving into agrarian studies full-time because of the questions that that fellow in, in London had posed, and I was working on landlord and peasant relations. Okay, And, and the, the materials that were, were afforded, there were, a lot, there were lots of historical materials available. The problem was that the theories available in the social sciences to talk about landlord and peasant back then, in the 70, mid-70s, early 70s, especially if you were living in in the south were hardly the kinds of critical questions that i was looking to to deal with and one summer i took students i did it twice but one summer, i took students undergraduates to mexico to study and when we got back i found out i had a new office mate at the in the sociology department a guy who was working on his master's degree and he was asking me about my dissertation work at that time and, I, and when i told him he said to me stop 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 you're you're using this word "exploitation, an awful lot. Would you explain that to me? And I realized that i I was just utterly incapable of giving a decent answer to the question. So, in an embarrassment, I headed off campus to this little bookstore off campus thinking, i'm going to I got to escape. I've got to dig into something. And I was looking at the history shelves, which had a lot of works on history of the South and slavery. This was a small independent bookstore maybe owned by old leftists who somehow stuck around baton rouge louisiana which sounds an ironic thing in itself and and i and i ran across the work of eugene genovese who was he's passed away now and he didn't always remain on the left he actually became very conservative in his older years but he he was the foremost historian of of slavery and decidedly the foremost figure writing from a marxist perspective And his first book was called The Political Economy of Slavery. And then his next book was The World the Slaveholders Made. And then the classic work that he authored is Roll Jordan Roll, a fabulous work. However much one may be critical of it. Well, I started reading it and I thought, wow, this is phenomenal. In other words, the way he was handling master-slave relationships in the context of Southern history and, 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 and the 19th century led me to ask anew the questions that I was dealing with. And I wrote to him. And I said, you know, I've been working from a totally different left perspective, something called dependence theory at the time. Uh, It was a question of of, uh, exploitation as in modern world systems and things like that. And he said to me very bluntly, just throw it all away. Read the British Marxist historians. And he gave me the names that I should be reading, at least two two of whom I recognized because I had encountered their names before politically and also, to some extent, intellectually. And I did what I could to throw myself into that kind of reading, though I'm working on Latin American landlords and peasants. I wasn't working on English history, so there was a limit to that. But Genovese's own work was a real guide to what I ought to be doing. So I wrote a dissertation that I named that I titled The Political Economy of Seniorialism in honor of Eugene Genovese's first book. So I, at this point, saw myself in terms of asking questions about political economy, class struggle, those kinds of things. And my dissertation dealt with all of that. And then I eventually found myself in an academic job. The job market was terrible. I found myself finally here in Green Bay. I was one year in Minnesota at St. Cloud State University. Then I came here to Green Bay. But I made a really close friend at St. Cloud, a guy who taught French and Russian. And he was he was a Marxist. He was a socialist, and he he said to me, "You've got to come back." I mean, we stayed very close, and we're not that far away—Minnesota and Wisconsin. He said, "You got to come back next summer, because I'm I'm I've organized, or I organized," he said, "the Marxist, the Summer Institute of the Marxist Literary Group of the Modern Language Association." That's it, and this the, the the sort of the. The Godfather, the you know the the man who sort of inspired all of this was a fellow named Fred Jameson, Frederick Jameson, leading Marxist literary theorist and critic. And Bill was sort of the guy, the guy who actually organized these the summer institutes at St. Cloud every other year. And he said, "You got to come back, especially next summer, because." And I would have, we would have gone to visit him in any case. But he said, "You got to come and stay for the week because Stuart Hall, who was." a a major figure in the British intellectual left um, is going to speak on the question of Althusserian, this is going to be a little too sophisticated for most people, that's academic, but Althusserian structuralism versus historicism and especially the work of the British Marxists. It was this kind of thing to make the long story short. The morning, it was the morning after the July, it was the night of the July 4th fireworks. We had all gone, and we, and a few of us were back at my friend Bill's house. It was Fred, Bill, and another guy sitting on the table. We were drinking vodka late into the night because Bill taught Russian. He always had a bo- frozen, you know, bottle of uh, vodka in the freezer. Gotcha. And, and so it was like a midnight, I bet, and the phone rings, and it was Stuart Hall calling from Birmingham, England, apologizing that he could not come over to speak because of budget cuts that were taking place at his university. So little did I realize Fred was rather upset that he was not going to be there to speak, Stuart. But my friend Bill whispered in his ear, ask Harvey to talk about it. So Jameson said, Harvey, Bill says you can handle this. You want to talk about the British Marxist historians? It was either the next day or the day after. And I had too many vodkas and I said, sure. I'd never done that thing publicly. So when I realized that next morning, what I was in for, I quickly threw together notes that I thought would be informative. And I then proceeded the following morning to to speak. However, again, this is very academic-y. The first person to speak that morning was a woman named Gayatri Spivak, who was the queen of postmodernist theory. In literary studies, oh otherwise known as post structuralism, specifically what came to be called deconstruction, from, uh, f- modeled after the work of Jacques Derrida. And when she, I'm, she's, I'm when vaguely it, familiar with this, yeah. Uh, the main thing is so that all of these literary pr- professors of literature who were Marxists they were deeply embedded in what was called structuralism, the structuralism of Althusser. So when she spoke, which by the way is just, I I I would have little to do with it. I tried to, I mean, I I understood what they were doing, but it seemed utterly irrelevant to real world politics and history. Having said that, what she had to say to them, they didn't even understand because it was it was you know it was like just up there, just up there. So they were kind of kind to her in part because she was so important; they didn't want to cross her. And also because I don't think they fully understood what she was saying. I knew I understood nothing of what she was saying. <laughs> so then I spoke in plain English, plain American English, you know, with references to, to history, both British and American, to explain who the British Marxists were and what they had to say to us regarding the left politically and you know, making radical history. And when I finished, I felt like all of the folks in that room, the 50 of them from all across the country and some from overseas, Had almost spat upon me, each one of them. Now, I don't think they did, but it felt like they did because their questions were so hostile. So I got up and I, you know, to leave the room thinking, why did I ever bother to come? And Fred Jameson grabbed me and said, Man, that was a great talk. (laughs) Because Jameson was not a structuralist, he was part of a different intellectual tradition, the Frankfurt School, in many ways, he he was informed by. Well, he said, You got to write it up. Well, I thought, OK, great. And so we stayed on for the rest of the week of events. The following year, I was involved in a summer institute myself at the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton, the place that was set up in the 30s and 40s for Albert Einstein. But they had different kinds of programs there. And what to make the long story short there is I spent the summer writing up the talk that I gave. And it's actually a funny way it happened, but I won't get into that right now. I don't want to waste our time. And again, the guy who was supervising our seminar, a really smart historian who's now retired from the University of Chicago, said to me, You really ought to write, you really ought to write a book. A paper's not good. You, you should write a book. And I thought, I don't know. So I, I, as a lark, I sent my paper over to Cambridge, England, to the foremost English language theorist named Anthony Giddens, social theorist. And two weeks later Giddens' own publisher sent me a contract to write the book. Next thing I knew having been a student of Latin American studies, my life in the 80s was now focused on the work of the British Marxist historians who as as you know for having read the prefaces to the to each of the editions, I came to know in addition to writing about them, I also came to get to know them. I like to th- without I would easily say that I became friends with them. They were more my parents' generation. I, it wasn't like we were peers in that sense of age or anything. But I really learned my entire understanding of history, which didn't depend specifically on on working on British questions, because I ended up moving into American history because of them, by the way. They, basically, they were the ones who said to me, You know, you really should be writing about American history with the kinds of things and the kinds of questions you're now asking, and which is what I ended up doing. But what I've, co- what I've come to understand from them is the fact that, first of all, that most Marxists really were failing to come to grips with the most fundamental question that Marx had posed. And that had to do with questions of exploitation and the struggles to overcome that exploitation, whether they were peasants, Artisans, workers, or in the American story, and universal story, in some ways, slaves. and and, you know, i I'm, i don't I don't know if that's getting at the original question, but that's how I came to do the book. Yeah. Okay. that that and then I will also add that I then went on to write about other historians who I promised Christopher Hill, one of the main figures in that book in that book. I, I promised him I would return to study. Not study, but to work on a, another group of, of historians who were part of their group, but I didn't have space for them in the first book, and that became the Education of Desire.
0: I was going to ask you about that because you had mentioned to me the Education of Desire, and I had seen it on some lists. I still haven't read it, but one. But your but your most recent foreword tells that story about sort of speaking with Christopher Hill and and wanting to you know. You felt like you had left
1: people out,
0: sort of. of yeah. The story. Well, he
1: said that one of the people I originally planned on including, however worthy he would be of attention, did was not a part of their group. Their group, by the way, or, originated back in the nineteen late nineteen forties well, after the war. Yeah. Let's let's sort of seat them first because okay. it is a very it is very interesting that
0: they all sort of uh, start their studies in the depression right during the 1930s uh, and right. then but not till after they come back from the war do they uh, have sort of strong communist beliefs and do and and, and Well they were cre- student
1: they were student communists right 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 okay and, but after the and after and they remain so and when they returned from the war as they were beginning as they were doing their own either graduate study or in certain cases already into academic careers okay the a goodly number of them from around Britain organized what became no, wasn't just known. They called themselves the Communist Party Historians Group (CPHG), and it really was a remarkable and extraordinary group of, of predominantly very young men who had wartime experience, who had been not just communist but especially anti-fascist and had fought the fascists, the Nazis in, in World War II. And so, when they, and so, the questions that they were posing were were intended to get at the things I just mentioned, but especially they saw it as their mission to to revise, to rewrite, to tell the more fundamental story of British history, the story of especially English and then the larger question of British history from the bottom up, as opposed to the history of kings and queens and lords and and military leaders and so on and so forth. To their mind, history okay had to be told from the bottom up if you're going to understand the making of history okay the role in wh- the the ways in which peasants however seemingly marginal to history themselves were regularly involved in resistance or rebellion and you know how this was very much a part of of english life be- and how otherwise to understand the notion very deep notion that englishmen carried of the Freeborn Englishman that became also then the idea of the Freeborn Britain. This was not simply something invented from above and propagated. It was a consequence of generations upon generations, upon generations of struggles to assert some kind of sort of, you know, I wouldn't call it equality in our modern sense, but some sense of equality, some sense of of being not merely. The bottom of the barrel in the medieval order when we think of peasants, or for that matter, you know, artisans or workers later. So, to them, the idea was they were going to rewrite British history, tell the story of British history through this, and especially English history, through the class struggles that had shaped that history. You might say their chief working hypothesis was Karl Marx's line in the Communist Manifesto, which I think is the fundamental Marxist thesis or or hypothesis, and that is the history of all hitherto societies is the history of class struggle, okay, or class conflict. So, you know, they, you know, that's how they approached it, and this Communist Party historians group really did provide for them an intellectual community and also shaped the way in which they would later pursue their work. Now, let me be clear, they were already publishing in the late 1940s, into the 1950s. But their very, their most important work actually appears, I would argue, in the 1960s, by which time they have left the Communist Party, almost all of them, because in 1956 there were the revelations of what Stalinism had had done, the millions who had, you know, who had who had perished in you know the gulags or in or in the famine, say in the Ukraine, so on and so forth. But And then also, most significantly, what really drove them out of the British Party was the Soviet invasion of Hungary to suppress the Hungarian Revolution of 56 and the failure of the Western parties to condemn the Soviets for, for having done so. So you get this exodus, a vast exodus, in this country too, but an exodus in Britain right. of communists. And in the case of these historians, they left the Communist Party. They remained... On the political left they still thought of themselves as very much pursuing the project that they had begun the one historian who did not leave the party a couple of them left within a few years after 56 but the one who never left the party in many ways is the most famous of all of them as a historian in the world and that's eric Hobsbawm. and uh i mean you know he and i spent a good afternoon one time as i mentioned in the in the in the pref the third preface when I finally had the guts to ask him, why did you not leave the party? Okay, but we can get back to that later if you want.
0: Yeah, let's let let's do that because I I did want to talk about that, the idea and and sort of how uh what a change it was or what a the 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 group that they had looking at you know history from below. You told it and then maybe and it wasn't I don't believe it was with Hobbesbaum. I think maybe. I mean, you'll remember, uh, but you were visiting England. Yes. And, uh, and, and, As and I, it,
1: You know, what's funny is I took students to Mexico when I was a graduate student. Yeah. When I was an assistant professor here in Wisconsin, I was taking students to London for a January one-month period. So right. lots of good things happen when I spent time taking students on road trips. Yeah, and I, and I don't remember if it was Rodney Hilton or, or not, but um, you're
0: touring sort of like a castle. Okay, and, okay, hold on. It, yeah. Do you know the okay, story? The you, I mean,
1: you, you're, you did it, so you yeah. remember the story. This is I, interesting. It's a fascinating story. You know, story. When, you know this, this, much of this occurs after the book has come out. Okay. And what happened with Rodney Hilton was really interesting. Rodney and I had spent a day or two when I was working on the book, I, when I was interviewing him about his experience in the Communist Party historians group and things like that, and then the book came out and that would have been then the book came out in the winter of 84 85 i guess i took students to england that january at least i believe i did and i always made it a point of letting students free for one week of the four weeks some of them just got on a jet and flew over to paris for the week but a lot of them toured britain you know or to, over to ireland what i would do is i would go to um my wife's parents lived on the coast of Wales. They were British. Uh, my father-in-law was Scottish. My mother-in-law was Welsh. And this particular trip, I guess I had gone to visit my in-laws, and then Rodney invited me to come to to Birmingham. I hope I got my years right. I think it was then, and he surprised me. First of all, he had a dinner party to celebrate the publication of the book, and Christopher and Bridget Hill were there, Edward and Dorothy Thompson, and Rodney and his wife. So it was like. You know, it's fabulous to be celebrated by this extraordinary group of historians. But they've spent a good part of the evening belittling me, just as a sidebar to that, because I didn't read mystery novels. And they all seemed to have this interest in mystery novels, especially American mystery novels. Not the English stuff, but the American stuff. You know, the sort of the darker stuff. Okay, so having said that. So the next day, Rodney said, let me me take you on a... Let's take a drive. Let, Let me show you the West Midlands. And we were out, you know, driving around the countryside. He was pointing out historical stuff. It was fascinating. It was really good. And especially because as a medievalist, he knew stuff that I would never have begun to know. And we stopped in 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 the town of Warwick, where there is a castle, by the way. It's a famous castle, Warwick Castle. But on the high street, what they call it, Main Street, we say Main Street, they say High Street, at the very end was this church whose name is in the book, but I don't remember quite off the top of my head. And he said, "Let's go inside. Let me. This is this is a really interesting little church. So we go inside, and we're walking around, and we're standing at these big. What would you call them? Tomb. You know, the tombs. These two big tombs, of the the maybe the duke and duchess or whatever. The point is, and these are the kind where on top of the tomb, you actually have image. You know, like yeah. carved out images of these two characters. Yeah. And this man comes over, very sizable figure, asking, would would we like to hear about the exploits of the Duke on horseback? And you know, that, that way we're supposed to give some money to the church if if you know token amount. But Rodney, without missing a beat, says, No, we'd like to hear about the exploitation and resistance by the peasants. The exploitation of them, the resistance by the peasants. This guy, like, whoa, you know, I'm sure he thought himself, this guy's a communist. And you know, that was the first, <laughs> I'm sure he thought that. I was worried because. Rodney was, you know, was not insubstantial, but this guy was big. So I was a little worried about what might happen. But in any case, it was I mean, it was a moment where I, you could see how it was like, you know, th- th- that it was instinctive, these kinds of thoughts. And I, I remember thinking, I hope I hope I don't stop thinking like that. OK, and, and now I'm now I'm probably what Rodney's age was at that time. And I can tell you, I I I don't think I've stopped thinking like that.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's it's fascinating. Um all through their work, whether it's you know medieval and feudal history, uh, you know peasant social relations, um, how the how land ownership changed over time, uh,
1: it's well fascinating. The first. Well, you know, as I'll explain, some people uh, hopefully will go pick the book up. Yeah, please. As much as the book is about British history, historians, it is the case that the questions that they pose are so critical to us today to, to make sense of exploitation and resistance which we're often unaware of and i'll just say quickly that if you don't think that there's class struggle underway now keep in mind class struggle is not a consequence of class consciousness as people often used to say there's well you get class structure and then you get class consciousness then you get class struggle what that british historian said is no you have ex- you have relations of of exploitation okay what you would call is ex- surplus extraction that is a that's exploitation from whatever the labor force is. That relationship inherently engenders class conflict, class struggle. It's out of the struggle that people become aware of themselves, you might say, in a collective or, or class-like way. So the first, chat, the first part of the book is about a fellow named Maurice Dobb, a political economist who was a professor at Cambridge, and which was an amazing time to be at Cambridge because you had you had John Maynard Keynes and you had Joan Robinson and you had Piero Sraffa. I mean, it was an incredible group of of really outstanding economists. Not the kind of economists I'd want to have that I'd want to ever fail to have lunch with if I had the opportunity. Say okay. so they were the kind I'd want to have lunch with. Period. Okay. So anyhow, Dobb was the Marxist of that group, and. He was fascinated by the question of how did how did capitalism emerge from or, or develop out of feudalism, which is a question that sort of implied clearly in the in the Communist Manifesto. So he writes his book, studies in the development of capitalism, in order as a rejection in one sense of the Weberian idea of a spirit, you know, the Protestant ethic and the spirit of capitalism. It's a rejection of Henri Perren, the Belgian historian, that talks about it as being a consequence of long distance trade. No, Dobbs says, class struggle is at the heart of the of the question, and he proceeds to do that. And it kicked off a debate that continued for a good 30 years, the 40s, the 50s, into the 60s. What am I talking about? 70s. It, it lasts like 40 years easily. And um, actually, if anyone's interested in those questions, they should get pick up a book entitled The Brenner Debate. Robert Brenner, professor of, uh, of, of economic history at UCLA, was the— Offered one of the finest sort of arguments on this debate in the in the eighties, actually. Okay, so that first chapter is all about the studies of, about capitalism, and that was really my thing at the time because I was fascinated: how did seniorialism, as a set of social relationships between landlord and peasant, okay, how did it continue to survive even in the midst of capitalism? So that was important to me. Then the next chapter is Rodney Hilton on peasants medieval history, and the struggles of peasants, the most significant of them, the English rising of 1381, which I could spend a good bit of time talking about, but believe we'll it at that. And then Christopher Hill, the, the foremost historian of the 17th century, which for Americans may not mean very much, but it is the time of revolution in England, a time to get crude about it when the English taught the French how to take off the head of a king. And he he was asking questions about to what extent the 1640 revolution, sometimes called the Puritan revolution, was in fact structured by class and class struggles. And he ends up writing a series of books which are just fabulous, one of which the world turned upside down. That's the one I've read. I thought it was it was I mean, everyone, every American as anyone, anyone who has any interest in social movements and radical ideas in how. Seemingly, it's, even religion can generate this sort of radicalism. It's a, just a really great work, and anyhow, he he so shaped the study of that period that it's sometimes been called Hill's century. That's that you know that kind of that kind of view of it. Then you get Eric Hobsbawm, a chapter on him. Hobsbawm is remarkable because he worked not only on labor history, on British history generally. He became a world historian. And most people will come to know of him because of his, what was originally this trilogy, the age of revolution, about 1789 to 1848, the age of capital, 1848 to 1875, and then the age of empire, 1875 to 1914. And he never expected to write on the 20th century because when they were, in the Communist Party, they they did not write on the 20th century because they did not want to get in trouble with the party. God forbid they should say something that, that deviated too much. But he did end up writing that fourth volume. That's and fine. then you get E. P. Thompson. I, look, I mean, I'll tell you, I, all of these historians just fascinated me, and it's almost hard for me to say which one did I, which one do I, you know, do I like the most or anything like that. I can tell you this. I think. Edward Thompson's book, The Making of the English Working Class, is the book that shaped my generation of historians, Marxist historians and social scientists, those of us who are on the left as grad students. There is no work. And by the way, it's a 900-page book. So one says to himself or herself, if they're not, not particularly interested in English history, am I going to read this thing? You know, But it's just... It's just fascinating. It opens up basically with, you'll see why I found my way into it. Thomas Paine and Rights of Man goes on to talk about the impact of the, industrial, of the industrialization. But what he's trying to do, I, I actually think there's a, if I could read it, I'd like to read one. Probably the most, fa- it pr- definitely fa- shaped my generation. Okay, this is in the preface to the making of the English working class. And, and I, I, I'm not exaggerating. My generation of historians, whatever they were working on, whether it was British, American, whatever kind of history, if they were on the left, this paragraph shaped their thinking. Thompson writes, I am seeking to rescue the poor stockinger, the Luddite cropper, that's, you know, the, right. the workers who were smashing the machines, the obsolete, obsolete handloom weaver, the utopian artisan, and even the deluded followers of Joanna Southcott from the enormous condescension of posterity. Their crafts and traditions may have been backward-looking, their communitarian ideals may have been fantasies, their insurrectionary conspiracies may have been foolhardy, but they lived through these times of acute social disturbance and we did not. Their aspirations were valid in terms of their own experience, and if they were casualties of history, they remain condemned in their own lives as casualties what he was asking us as a, as as intellectuals and historians is to take seriously people's lives to take seriously how they tried to make sense of their lives and how what they came to know and understand you know shaped the struggles that they pursued against those who were exploiting them and i you know That's that's the kind of stuff my generation was about back in the late 60s, into the 70s. And I think historians, social historians, ever since have been shaped by that. So, Thank you for reading that.
0: Um, And I'll tell you why. Uh, I kind of kicked off with this idea that I'm... You know, now that I know this stuff, and I have the opportunity, I'm going to try to apply it. Um, And so... Uh, you know we have another project, A Delaware Call. Uh, it's like a journalism project.
1: Yeah. Um, and I want everyone to know right now that I know a lot of podcasters. I know a lot of folks who are involved in all these kinds of endeavors. Every one of them has their really fine, fine service that they're pursuing. I can't tell you how much I admire you, Robert. Okay, oh, Come on. I'm uh, going to embarrass you right now. Okay? You kind of are a little bit. I'm squirming in my seat. I can. I'm telling you, yes, he is. By the way, he's squirming. No, seriously, you were determined, by way of the of Highlands Bunker, from Wilmington, Delaware, to take seriously the possibilities that prevailed in your state of Delaware, and you were not going to let these things be ignored. In fact, I, in your own way, you're you're helping to build a progressive left politics in that state, and I hope you get. I hope you are appreciated for it, and someday you will. You. I hope you are. Well rewarded for it. And I don't mean monetarily, necessarily. I'm not that's selling on money. Yeah, no, that's fine. I want fine people I to mean. recognize the service you are. I,
0: I I very much appreciate it. I will tell you that uh, the, I think the last time we recorded together, uh, we had uh, a woman on who had uh, come to sort of public, the public sphere running against Tom Carper back about four years ago. Uh, she's worked in tons of advocacy both locally and nationally, and she was running for a uh, a House seat uh, where the the establishment corporate party handpicked a realtor in her district to run against her, and she won. She's going to be in, – in January, she's going to be in the House of Representatives. I
1: am those. thrilled. I don't know and if you remember having this her...
0: conversation, but she, she won. She's going to be a, – a, she's a House representative, state representative.
1: I, I am absolutely thrilled. and let me put it this way i I hope she can remember some of the things that I said because I remember I remember her energy, and I hope that she can consider talking to me again uh, so we can talk about ways in which she might introduce the idea of an economic bill of rights in the Delaware legislature.
0: i can I can make that happen, I think.
1: yeah, maybe we should have another conversation, yeah, please.
0: Yeah. So with the, the call project, um the we have been associated with this sort of uh, this collaborative of media and journalists entities in the state, and you know I feel lucky to be have been invited into it uh, because you know all the major media outlets are in it. I mean, again, it's Delaware, so it's not you know crazy, but you know uh, our our NPR affiliate, uh, our big paper, and, and all of it. Uh so they have uh money available via you know a, a a grant through another nonprofit for for solutions journalism. Um and I and I've been trying to think about how we could fit into this and do work that people would share that would you know be appropriate for this they really want to look at one issue which is sort of like polarization but not just political polarization but cultural social polarization. So I got I, I, I wanted to do something on Delaware history, so we put a team together. We started reading this book, uh, A House Divided. It's a it's a, the history of slavery and emancipation in Delaware by uh, Essa. She was uh, Auburn. Uh, she was at Auburn. Uh-huh.
1: Uh huh.
0: But it's all of these stories about Delaware history that relate to. I mean, the, the through line is race relations, uh, emancipation, and slavery. But uh, the reaction of you know. Religious institutions you were you were mentioning before, uh, the Quakers and the Methodists here.
1: Um, uh, other and just so people know, just so people know, the Quakers were one of the radical religious groups of the 17th century that are that are included in that book, "The World Turned Upside Down." That's right. Okay, and the Methodists is a major thematic in Thompson's book, "The Making of the English Working Class." Just so people know. Yeah,
0: and we might be going going up to that because uh, by the time this comes out in uh, two weeks or so, uh, this I'll have already pitched it, so I'll know whether I got the funding for it or not. Uh, but we want to tell some of these stories from uh, from Delaware history uh, to sort of uh, to to sort of see how they relate to whether or not. You know what the exploitation was, what the relationship was, and how these, uh, how these conflicts either resolved or didn't resolve, uh, and and so there's a lot of stuff that relates to you know Delaware. It's a very unique place because it's so small, because it was a border state, Stayed in the union, but had slavery, but didn't even have a so lot of slaves. Yeah, if, and but that's the...
1: interesting because I could tell you, having grown up in New Jersey, that if you would ask me, I, I'm not even sure I would have realized that Delaware had slavery to that extent yes. through, even through the civil war. Okay. Which is, which is my ignorance, not, but it's, but it's I would not have known Maryland. I would have not, I knew, right. everyone knew, but I, but Delaware, well, I, in the, fact, I only came to full grips with it when Bronco Marketic, is that how you pronounce the name? Possibly his I, I book so. on the book he wrote on, on Biden. Right. And where he mentions the, you know, uh, the things about Delaware that I well didn't know. famously
0: Delaware didn't, uh, didn't ratify the Civil War Amendments, the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments until 1901. What? Correct. It's, I didn't know that. that is and that's, a, that's curious, a too, because what what does it say on your license plate? The Constitution State? The first state. Well, we were the first state to ratify the Constitution, but we were the last state to ratify the Civil War Amendments. So it's a very, very funny uh, quirk in history. But again, these kind of stories can be told Uh, in such a way that sort of relies on the idea of history from the bottom, class struggle. And that's kind of—we just had our our, our group finished uh, the first book we were reading, and now I have to pitch the idea, and then we're going to go off on a research project. Uh, We have a historian from the University of Delaware who's sort of our academic advisor. Uh, He has contacts within sort of the historians in Delaware and his colleagues at the university— um, so yeah, I, I'm 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 very excited about it. But yeah, this is why I've been rereading the book and thinking more about it. Because if I get the opportunity to do something like this, I have to do it like that. You know, it ha- it has to be done in the light of uh, of class struggle of, about the many. You know, what's going on with the most people? What what are, how are they how are they reacting to the situation they find themselves in? Yeah, it's just an exciting thing we're trying to do and I'm really trying to keep uh sort of my sort of the ballast would be this this concept of of sort of class struggle how it plays itself out and you know they're they're sort of keen on the polarization idea as it sort of is now which I, I understand why they're doing that. I uh, I'm I'm sort of like I I'm coming at it from I have a unique sort of uh, niche sort of Product, so I feel like I could do something different.
1: You know, so that's kind of what we're trying to. I do I can tell you that, especially as a Jersey boy, though I was from North Jersey, but I I had a girlfriend for a, a little bit of time down down towards the Jersey side of the Delaware Bay, and um so and that and and I would look across and I would ask myself. Now I'm asking myself again after all these years. No, I guess I wasn't asking myself back then because I wasn't as aware as I am now. If Delaware was a slave state. And and New Jersey, although there there had been slavery in New Jersey, undeniably, did, did the Underground Railroad operate by way of heading north into Pennsylvania only, yes. or were there boats? Ah, well, there's a very
0: famous there's a very famous uh, Quaker um, here, Thomas Garrett is his name. Um, he was at the Wilmington Meeting House, which still stands. I've been in it; it's really cool. Um, but he, but I mean, it was it was just a mechanism of getting people to Philadelphia. So I, I, they, I, I believe there were boats, there were you know wagons with no you know false thing, whatever. There was all kinds of stuff. But yeah, the interesting thing about Delaware is that the northern part, there's always been this, uh, separation between the northern part of Delaware and the southern part of Delaware, and it's weird because it. Because it's because it's small. Correct. It's small, but it has this because they had it happened to do with a little bit about colonial settlement uh, because the Quakers operated in Newcastle County and Wilmington. Uh, The Methodist operated a little bit in Kent, but in Sussex was was very agricultural and always had sort of the most agricultural, you know, slave, slave society. But there was no real big plantations.
1: Right. That's right.
0: So, you know, it it was weird. They, you know, the 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 government was always trying to come up with like cockamamie schemes to like, okay, well, you can manumit your your uh, female slaves at 18 and your male slaves at 25, but if they go over if they're over the age of 35, you're going to owe money for their upkeep for their, you know, for their me- so it was all of these different stupid, you know, we would call them like technocratic solutions to this to like just why are you? you know, what is this problem? And they were getting pressure from the northern states because a lot of the northern states were doing either gradual or immediate emancipation, and so like New York, uh, New England, a lot of the places in New England. So yeah, it's it's, it's a very very uh, weird story. It's a very weird state, um, but yeah, this is uh, this is a project we're getting ready to embark on.
1: Fabulous! I, I'm you never you never cease to amaze me.
0: Well. I mean, I have a lot. Of, I have time on my hands, so I'm going to try to do something with it, uh, for for sure. Pays
1: to marry into money, right?
0: <laughs> well, you're not the only one who always reminds me that uh, Nurse Susan is a great, uh, great, uh, you know, sort of like benefactor of ours. Uh, so, you know, I d- I do appreciate that. But yeah, Carl Carl's on the team. Um, uh, there's a couple. There's a, a journalist that we work with who I just spoke with tonight, actually, at the call. Who loves to do a lot of research like that? Um, so yeah, it's it's I'm 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 excited about it, and I, I hope that uh, yeah I hope I can uh, help direct it in a way that. Uh, well, I'll tell you what happened. So I'm getting excited about it because I'm ready to pitch it. We've read the one book, we've had an editorial meeting, all of this, and some somebody asked me, "Hey, what is the thing you've been working on?" He's like, "Give me like the, you know, the short version," and I said, "You know, it's a sort of Delaware history." um specific you know the people's history of you know specific incidents that sort of point to this particular topic yeah and well i didn't i don't know if i said those words though but i might have i had to look because he said oh you're going to give it the zen treatment and i said well i'd rather give it the christopher hill treatment but whatever so so that's actually that's actually what i'm trying that that's the that's the plan
1: sure it's great fantastic
0: well um Harvey, thanks again for uh, for talking to me. Uh, thanks for inspiring everyone, and thanks for the book, folks, because it's available uh, from Red Emma's uh, in in Baltimore Co-op. It's the British Marxist Historians. Uh, the original forward by uh, Eric Hobsbawm is there. You can read that. Um, but uh, but yeah, it's, it's it's always nice to pick up and and kind of uh, I don't know for me anyway, and the way that I think um, to sort of see the development of this. Of this kind of work and, and really thinking about You know how most of the people Dealt with their lives not like The the two people that you know names You've heard of uh, You know you, you, you told a funny story uh, I, I've heard you t- I don't remember where, where I heard it but uh, There was a uh, I guess one of the uh, British professors came and Was teaching in, at Rutgers
1: Oh yeah. Okay. So E.P. Thompson. Uh, Edward oh, Thompson. So it was It was E.P. Thompson. Okay. Yeah, Edward Thompson. Who but this will understand... be. This is a good closer because it's a funny line. Yeah. Mo- <laughs> most, of, in fact, most of his career was not was spent not as an academic. He never did a Ph.D. or anything like that. He was a teacher, in in what you would call adult education, workers' education. Then he became a very successful historian. I mean, phenomenal historian. And then he was offered a pro- a professorship at a British university. But after several years, he just left. He, it wasn't for him. And, but he was offered a professorial chair to launch the Raoul Wallenberg Chair of Human Rights at Rutgers. and he came over. And I, was a, I did my undergraduate degree at Rutgers. My family's in New Jersey. And we went back to New Jersey to visit my family during the time he and his wife, Edward and Dorothy Thompson, were in New Jersey. So I spent the day with them down at Rutgers. And it was great i mean just wonderful to see them at that time that would have been 1990 i guess 89 90. and we were out to dinner um on the campus i guess at the faculty some kind of faculty dining thing which was not my normal place when i was an undergraduate obviously and we were walking back to where they were living in new brunswick and i said to edward but we haven't really spoken how do you find uh, teaching here in the united states and he had done it before Back earlier at the University of Pittsburgh on a visiting appointment, and he said, "Oh, I love American students. They have so much energy and enthusiasm." And I said, "Oh, that's great." He goes, "But," and then he said this, "But he said, sometimes they ask the stupidest. I don't know if he said it, but I can hear him saying the stupidest fucking questions, you know." <laughs> and, and what he meant, well, and I said, "What do you mean?" He goes, "Well, here we are talking about class struggle or labor or some, you know, religious group, whatever it might be, and they say." Who was the king at the time? And Edward said, th- would say, to him, and Edward would want to say them, to "Why do you need to know who the king was? OK? They're irrelevant, okay? Now, they weren't completely irrelevant, obviously, but the point is to the kind of history that they were doing, the struggles, you know, the, the power, the concentration of wealth, the struggles against and that kind of stuff, you just don't need to know who the kings and queens are, okay? Just don't need to know. So he thought it was kind of cute, but annoying. <laughs> yeah, I could see that. Because well, he said, oh, I love how they ask questions, but sometimes they ask the stupidest questions. Yeah, the
0: stupidest <laughs> fucking questions. Yeah, who was, the, who was the king? Who cares? Who cares? I don't, care. <laughs>
1: I don't even, I don't know. Who gives a shit? Yeah, if uh, Edward were here, if he and Dorothy were alive and they were visiting the States and the Queen had passed away in their, in their absence, I'm sure they would be utterly fascinated and annoyed by the kind of attention you'd think that the queen of the United States had passed away when she did.
0: So uh, so my wife, Nurse Susan, is a huge fan of Halloween. She loves decorating the house. We live in a nice city block, so we get, always get a lot of trick-or-treaters and everything. And she always likes to do something new. So this year we have a bench in front of our house. She has two life-size skeletons. She got one like a little suit with pearls and a tiara. And one with a hat, like a bowler hat and a sash. And she, and she laid across their legs like an old blanket, the Union Jack. So it was the prince and the queen were, we're, we're, we're dead on our, uh, for about a month. People would walk by and it'd be like, oh, that's nice. i said, well, it's an Irish neighborhood. Nobody
1: complains. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, I spent, my wife being British, my mother-in-law, but it, though she grew up in a coal mining family, um, she had this incredible affection for the queen, as did as did yeah. the majority of Brits. And so when we were vi- whenever we were visiting there, and we often spent lengths of time with them since we had to travel that far to get back to them. Whenever the queen was on TV, which was every night on the news in some fashion, my father-in-law would say, would say, <laughs> say Anne, the queen is on, and she'd come running in, you know, drying her hands in her apron. Why did she run it? Because she had to see what the queen was wearing. That was important to oh, her. So. Boy. so, as much as I, I, I used to say under my breath, "Off with their heads." I also had a, I also had an affection for my mother-in-law, which kept me saying it under my yes. breath and not out loud. Yeah,
0: yeah, for sure, for sure. Yeah, I always um, I, I, I wonder what you think of it because the only whenever anybody mentions um, uh, Welsh sort of uh. Minor tradition and everything. I think of that uh, that Llewellyn novel, uh, "How Green Were My Valleys." Is do people like that, or is that like uh, not a thing? I don't know. I, I and that, that's what I that 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 idea. Um, but I mean, there's and and I mean there there's a labor organizing in it and all of that, which is very yeah, interesting I, to I me too. you know funny I
1: really I can't speak to that. I can't tell you that my my mother in law was the was the daughter of there were like half a dozen kids in the family, and her father was. Was a a, a leader um, among the workers? So probably, yeah. You know, so cool. So there was, so there was no doubt about the sort of class consciousness, you might say. But it was also the case that somehow this goes back to 1381 peasant rising. I'll finish on the peasant rising. How's Perfect. that? So the peasant rising of 1381 was a decidedly revolutionary force, and what Christa, and what Rodney Hilton shows is that they were not some mad crazed crowds of peasants storming the you know the estates of their overlords but they they had a cause and they had a vision even of what the good england would be and that vision was that there would be no landlords no landlords but there would be one lord in england and that would be the king and there and why did they do that because they believed the king would be just and fair so they couldn't quite They couldn't quite bring, they couldn't quite envision what we would think of as democracy, but they could, they could envision a more, a far more classless, egalitarian kind of England.
0: Yeah. I, I think it's, it's fascinating when those things are considered. Like, yeah, the, the, the the peasants had a, an idea, you know, you have to, and you have to, that was another thing. And I don't remember where it came up in the book, but, you have to understand that all of these forces are working together. So the fact that they didn't have the fact that we're talking about a long, complicated transition to capitalism. As from a Marxist perspective, people kind of, you know, it's it's hard for people to wrap their heads around. Um, but yeah, I mean, we're talking about, uh, you know, mostly sort of bourgeois revolutions that happen within context because that was the next step. I mean, Marx was even very clear about that. Yeah,
1: but you know what? One of the things that we discover is that it wasn't at all as Marx might have projected it. Right. Because generally, there was such an ambivalence about rural life and peasants, which, which characterize intellectuals everywhere in the world, that their presumption was somehow this came out of urban, you know, sort of early bourgeois kinds of economic activities. But in fact, what we now know is that, it hap- it begins capitalism in the English countryside, when tenant farmers have secured greater access to the land, and they're hiring back the displaced peasants as workers. this sort of capitalist relationship, but they're also being squeezed by those from whom they're renting the lands. These, these aristocratic class. So it's it's sort of it's the structure of capitalism, not necessarily the you know the religious spirit of anybody that that drives us. But what I was going to say, this, as a, to really drive home this point about you know, this kingliness, you might say, is that in the 17, 1760s and the 1770s, when the Americans' rebellion began and becomes a revolution, what, what Thomas Paine realized was that in order to show Americans that they were capable of a revolution, they had to be disabused of their affections for the king because as as Paine realized Americans were living so far from England that they could have a nice idea of the king whereas the England and and the idea was the English working people did not have the view of the king that the American working people did because the ones in England had to suffer more directly that lordly aristocratic monarchical order whereas in America they were far enough away that their hostility in America was towards Parliament, not towards the king. And and Paine realized if you're going to bring Americans to the point of recognizing what they're capable of accomplishing, becoming Americans and no longer being British, you had to disabuse them of their sympathies for the king. And that's why if anyone picks up Common Sense by Thomas Paine, the greatest pamphlet of the modern age, stands alongside even the Communist Manifesto, he spends a good deal of time talking about the foolishness of king of of kings and monarchs, the stupidities of kings and monarchs, the fact that kings take you into wars, the fact that kings literally are living off of the fat of the land, all that kind of stuff.
0: Yeah, I was uh, mentioning to somebody that I was speaking to you today, and and of course mentioned pain right out of the right out of the box. And uh, I remember, I don't know if I talked to you about this, I know I sent you the, the passage, but I read a biography of the, uh, the German revolutionary uh, August Village, who wound up moving to the United States and then fighting in the American Civil War. Uh, but, but one of the, you know, they were all in these German-American societies where they spoke German, you know, they had the beer hall. So he lived in Cincinnati, and every, every year in his uh, club or whatever, his bund, uh they had they had a a thomas Paine day they had a big beer they had a big beer celebration every thomas Paine's birthday absolutely look i mean if
1: if anyone i'm talking about of course are talking about the british historians but if you if you come up to my more modern american stuff not modern in the sense of current but the idea of my work um one of the things i spent a good deal of time on with thomas the story of Paine and his legacy in america is how common sense was immediately translated into german because of all the germans in philadelphia in 1776. And then it was placed on board boats that made their way to Hamburg and other places. The German intellectuals and radical workers, they read Common Sense in the same way they would one day perhaps read the Communist Manifesto, as a a treatise of revolution. And when the revolution of 1848 fails in Germany and you get this exodus of, of German workers and farmers and even intellectuals, you get these settlements from Milwaukee to St. Louis, Chicago, Cincinnati, it was a big one, Um, all the way down to the Texas Hill Country. And these folks came to America because they believed that Thomas Paine, you know, when he spoke of American possibilities, they they were going to share in it since they could not share it any longer at all in Germany. And it was not unusual for these clubs. In Milwaukee, it was called, they set up Turner Hall, which was a gymnastics and an educational society, which was the center of German American life. And they would get 800 people turning out on Thomas Paine's birthday to drink beer and dance and eat dinner. And that's exactly the kinds of stuff you were just referring to.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, We're bringing it back. We're bringing it back in a big way.
1: I love it. (laughs) I love it. I I wish we we should be celebrating Paine's birthday every January 29th. Well, Harvey, thank thank you very much.
0: Thank you for this. Very much appreciate it. And uh, before we go, I always say, left is best.